Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. That's the first time I've ever done that correctly in one take. Mr. Robot recap podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what are you been up to these days? Uh, well, in an earlier episode, I mentioned that I was messing around with um, Haskell, which is kind of like um, an obscure programming language, and it's notoriously hard to learn. So I've been working on it for like five years, and I feel like I just had a break to working on this one project that I've been working on. So I'm just like over the moon now that I finally understand Monad Transformers. I don't know what that is, but it's cool to work out like something you've been puzzling at for a long time. Yeah. Well, a, a Monad is just a, a monoid in the category of endofunctors. I think it's going to be cool that later in the series, I hope you're going to tell listeners about that project. Hopefully uh, the project will be out before this. <laughs> so um, normally uh, in our intros, we kind of pick a song that we want to show to you guys. But we also were thinking that in some episodes that have um, like a particularly good song in them, we're going to draw attention to that instead. So this episode features a cover of Where Is My Mind played on the piano. And um, this is very significant for this show for a number of reasons. I was wondering if you could explain a bit of those. Yeah, and so one of the parallels that we picked up on right away is that, so the original version of this song is recorded by the Pixies. And if you watch the movie Fight Club, at the, in like the climax scene of that movie, the original version of the song is playing. <laughs> right. So there are kind of some uh, parallels between the plot line of Fight Club and the plot line of Mr. Robot where they both have very unreliable narrators, they both kind of have a very anti-capitalist sentiment, and I think that their choice to use this song in the climax of season one is kind of an admission of the fact that they are uh, referencing Fight Club in that way. Exactly, and it's also a really lovely cover. It's actually a very good album. If you listen to that, it has covers of songs by Daft Punk and Justice and Beyonce, so you should really check it out. episode nine. Um, one more to go. One more to go. This season has been so excellent. I love this show so much. Um, and so we um, we got a bit of a flashback scene. Yeah, which is kind of uncommon from this series, right? I think there's only been one other one so far. Yeah, because normally um, when Elliot goes back into his past life, they're sort of superimposed, almost more like hallucinations. But this is a full-on flashback that we're experiencing, you know, in, in its totality. And so we see that Mr. Robot, at this time, uh, he works in a little computer repair shop. <laughs> yeah, and it seems to be like the late 80s or something like that. At least judging by the attire of this customer who comes in, because he accuses um, Mr. Robot's son, the young Elliot, uh, of stealing from him. And we get a couple of things we don't expect here. So first, Mr. Robot takes young Elliot's side. So he... The customer is being so rude and so unreasonable, he just throws him out. Well, actually, yeah. I can't say he's being unreasonable exactly. He was being a little rude, though. He was being very rude. So <laughs> he tells him to get out. When he calls Elliot out to confront him, instead of punishing him, he pulls out the movie listings and says that 20 bucks, the 20 bucks he stole. Yeah, because Mr. Robot knows that Elliot had stolen the money. 
<laughs> he knows this all along, and so he says the 20 bucks that he stole ought to be enough to cover them both at the movies and for them to get popcorn as well. Now, this is how we know it's the late 80s, because that was probably the last time you could take two people to the movies and eat popcorn for anything <laughs> close to $20. What a steal. Um, I guess uh, it kind of goes to show, similarly to that very important scene where Elliot and Mr. Robot first meet in the subway, Mr. Robot kind of explains his philosophy in life where he thinks that if you conceal something and you can get away with it, then you've kind of earned it. And you can see that he's kind of implanting this idea in Elliot from very early in his life as well. He, he does, and he justifies Elliot's actions. So he says, you know, even though what you did was wrong, you're still good. And that guy was a prick, and sometimes that matters more. <laughs> so let's go get some popcorn. Let's go get some popcorn. Second time we've seen popcorn maybe be important in this series. And maybe they just maybe he just loves it. Maybe that's why it's on at F Society all the time. I hate popcorn. I get stuck in my teeth. Oh, you know what? I got over that. But in the uh, many years that I had braces in my 20s, uh, popcorn was the worst food I had ever experienced. <laughs> my worst experience with braces was getting stuck in a mattress. So that doesn't seem so bad. <laughs> When the scene closes off, we actually see that Mr. Robot is the name of the computer repair store. So now it all makes sense. It all makes sense. And then we do see a bit of a flash forward where that store ultimately goes out of business and is replaced by a dry cleaner. A dry cleaner and then a tattoo store and then finally a bank of E. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, it goes through a few different stores. I actually probably forgot a few of them, but I think it's important to note that it ends up being a bank of E. Interesting. So upon reviewing that scene, we actually noticed that there are like five posters that say that it's 1994. <laughs> so we were wrong about it being late 80s. I hope that doesn't uh, give Discredit you a, us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we pay very close attention to all of these scenes, to be clear. Um, so the next scene, we're back in the present, uh, and it picks up right at the end of the last episode. Mr. Robot has arrived at Elliot's apartment, and they kind of get to have a chance for a heart-to-heart -heart about this revelation that Mr. Robot is actually Elliot's dad. I've got to say, um, Remy Malek's acting in this through all of these important revelations, I think he's so good in these scenes. He's won a lot of awards for it, and actually I believe this, uh, this season specifically won a Peabody Award, which is like quite a big deal. That's amazing. He's amazing in this. And so the conversation that they're having is also very important. So Mr. Robot tells them that Tyrell visited him last night. He makes it clear to Elliot, there are people out there who do not want us to work together. And you of, said you saw sort of a sinister element in it, too. Yeah, it kind of seems to me like um, Mr. Robot is kind of trying to make Elliot doubt his perceptions even more than he already is. He's kind of trying to turn him away from psychiatry, turn him away from people who he uh, reaches to for support, like Darlene. And I think that he's kind of isolating him so that he can have more control over him. And I agree with that analysis, because it does seem like a very clear push. He does push on psychiatry at least two or three times in the conversation, so... You can't infer anything good is happening there. And then, of course, in the, um, the advice we learned from Red All Over, uh, which is a Handmaid's Tale podcast, you should never follow a white man to a second location. This is the same white man, isn't it? Elliot does this all the time. Never but he learns. He never learns. But he and Mr. Robot are, uh, are off somewhere, and we'll pick back up on that. So we have a very quick scene here where we see uh, Harry again. I think we haven't seen him since um, the, the dinner party that they had earlier this season. Uh, the only thing that's really established in this scene, aside from Harry being like super nice, <laughs> is that um, Gideon is kind of afraid for the long-term sustainability of Allsafe. He kind of thinks that they're in jeopardy at this point. Um, that's kind of all that we established from this scene, though. And after this, we're brought to Angela's storyline. Right, and so Angela is back at her lawyer's office, and this is kind of a big day because the Colby confession is breaking. 
So she wants to help out on the case, and she's even gone to the lengths of she's quit her job at Allsafe. She wants to work for the lawyer and pursue Sledgegate full time. I love that we're calling it Sledgegate. Let's make that a hashtag. Hashtag Sledgegate. Yeah, I think, um, well, for one, you think that she would line up the job before she had quit the previous one, but this kind of reminded me of the scene where, um, I think it was episode three, where Tyrell gets really pumped up to go meet with uh, Philip Price about the vacant CTO position, and he just gets brushed off, because it's the exact same thing here. The lawyer doesn't really have time for Angela right now. Yeah, and it's so deflating, because Angela's done this. I mean, truthfully, I think she had to quit or get fired based on what she's done. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess she, yeah, she's kind of in hot water there. Well, and she knows she's never going to find another job in tech, and, of course, this project has become her life mission at this point. So it's really deflating when the lawyer says to her that, like, she can't work here. She needs to find something else to do with herself. And so I think we worry a little bit about Angela, who's kind of, like, cut a lot of ties and is, like, a really dangerous free agent. Maybe, like, a free radical. I think that's what we take antioxidants <laughs> for, all those antioxidants we're supposed to eat. Good word. Angela, at this point, gets a call from Darlene. Um, Darlene's really scared because Elliot's kind of gone missing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that it's interesting that, now that we know that um, Darlene is Elliot's sister, this kind of just confirmed that Darlene and Angela do have a very close relationship, like we saw with them at the uh, ballet practice or whatever <laughs> in the, the previous episode. Um, so it seems like uh, whenever there's some problem with Elliot, Angela's the person who Darlene reaches out to. I think so, because um, Darlene actually says to her, you know, you're the one who found him the last time he was like this. So we also get the sense this is sort of a recurring issue that Elliot has had over time. So they start looking around. Angela and Darlene actually head to, it's like their runaway hideout from when they were kids. Yeah, I guess it was where they found Elliot last time. But um, they don't find him this time, and that's a little discouraging to them. They're also, you can see they're sort of... Um, losing their optimism. Like, they say something like, we can't keep protecting him from himself like this. I guess that's kind of similar to that discussion she was having with him um, on the street last episode as well. Yeah, that is, right, where they're kind of breaking apart. Um, Angela, though, because lately I think she sort of has, she's very cynical about everyone's motivations. So she asks Dar Darlene, she asks Darlene, why she's back at all, because she's really suspicious that there's something going on there that she doesn't know about. Yeah, so this is kind of the, the beginning of Angela suspecting Darlene a bit. Next we see um, Tyrell and Joanna at the hospital. At the end of the last episode, it was left kind of ambiguous what happens uh, with their baby, because we knew that Joanna had induced labor, but we didn't see that the baby was actually born and is healthy, which seems to be the case which is normally a pretty happy occasion, but um, Joanna isn't really happy with how the situation has turned out. Only the Wellicks probably could make this. No, I'm sure other people have difficult life circumstances that make this complicated. But we get, um, this is a very human moment for Joanna. Probably the first of that that we've seen. <laughs> Possibly the last, like you don't even know with her. <laughs> but um, she talks about how um, she alludes to a child that she had given birth to when she was only 15 who, um, what I take from it is that she gave up for adoption, who was adopted by another family. And so she talks about like the guilt and the shame that she feels. I think that's a really interesting backstory for Joanna, because it kind of gives you some insight into how she ended up who she is. Yeah, and that's the thing, because we know very, very little about her at all, right? What's interesting about this is Tyrell had no idea. Yeah, she's been keeping secrets from him too, I guess. 
which makes me infer from that that there are probably a lot of secrets also kept from <laughs> I guess we're going to find out what those are. Audience of this show. Um, now, that human moment doesn't last very long for Joanna because she turns on Tyrell just as quickly. Yeah, she's tired of cleaning up after his messes, and she, I think, just outright asks for a divorce. Is that right? It is, and she more or less issues an ultimatum because she says she doesn't want him anymore. She wants a divorce unless he fixes it. So to keep following the Tyrell storyline, he goes to work and he finds that uh, Philip Price, the CEO of the company, is actually waiting for him. He's found out, uh, or the police have told him, that Tyrell is a person of interest in the murder of Sharon Knowles. And so that's a problem for the company. To say the least. And so while he doesn't directly accuse him of that, he tells them that he's fired. What I like about, um, and I always forget the actor's name, so uh, Tyrell's performance here, is that he looks to me like someone who is, doesn't understand what the normal human reaction would be, and so he's trying to act out normal, oh, yeah. uh, normal human emotions <laughs> in his face. I can certainly see what you mean. It's so, like, it looks so anguished, but very deliberate also. It's interesting. I think that you can actually notice him go through the five stages of grief. Uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. He goes through all of those in, like, under a minute. He, he begs, he looks depressed, and then he kind of just accepts it at the end. But can you pinpoint the exact moment when his heart breaks into you? <laughs> so maybe I'm reaching with my um, comments on the cinematography, but I thought another thing that was interesting here is that... Um, Philip Price, who's obviously very much like in control of this situation, has a very bright, fiery orange lamp right behind him that kind of just lights up the entire frame that he's in. But conversely, Tyrell um, is kind of just like a sullen blue backdrop. So Price is really firing on all cylinders here, and Tyrell is there in the front of it. Absolutely. Tyrell crumples. Tyrell begs for his job back, and Price loves it. He's so, he looks so self-satisfied in that scene. Yeah, well, what he was saying was that he was trying to imagine how Tyrell would react. And I think that we ourselves weren't really sure how he would react, especially considering how he reacted to Sharon Knowles. <laughs> well, exactly, and to such an upset, to such a blow to his plan, um, he, he loses his shit here, right? There's no other way to describe it. But this is interrupted because the cops are there again. They really can't track this guy down. Yeah, well, he kind of just blows them off again. Exactly. So he blows them off, tells them he wants to talk to him, he can call his lawyer, and storms out of the building, I think. So we're taking a break from Tyrell, and then we're back with uh, Gideon. It's not really established why, but I think that he's kind of um, really suspicious of the situation, and especially that um, disc repair place that Elliot was sent in the previous episode. So he goes there to do some investigation of his own, but he finds out that it was uh, that it actually burned down in a very convenient electrical fire. A very convenient, yeah, because what, he has maybe not even a day has passed since they've been dropped off, right? Yeah. So he knows something's up, and he starts digging around a little bit, and that's when he finds out that that server that had been transformed into a honeypot has now been changed back into a regular server. That's a bit of a cause for concern, isn't it? Absolutely. So he goes to find out how it happened, and he finds out that the order to do that came from Tyrell Wellick. Which makes it even more confusing. So... I mean, Gideon is like a dog with a bone here. He's going to find out what's up. So he actually goes to uh, Tyrell's office. But he's in for some surprises because um, Tyrell's just been fired. Instead, Gideon asks for Scott Knowles, and that's when they tell him... That Sharon is dead. So Gideon, who has been suspicious all along, now has several large new pieces of significant information all dropped on his head at once. 
So we're going to tackle this next scene a bit out of order because it's branching off really into its own storyline. Yeah, Angela's a bit of a rogue agent at this point in the story. Exactly, even though she's going to filter back into the Elliot Darlene Mr. Robot storyline that we discuss next. But Angela has, so we see her early in the day and she's kind of obsessively looking for news online about Terry Colby. Yeah, she's F5-ing on some Google results for his name. She's just F5-ing the shit out of it. So um, this time, though, instead of her going to find him, she arrives home and Terry Colby is waiting in her kitchen. That's definitely a little alarming. Um, Terry, his goals for this meeting are definitely not what I would expect at first. It kind of reminded me of, um, I think, in the second episode when Tyrell is um, offering a job at E-Corp to Elliot. Because that's what Terry does here. And why would Angela be interested in working at a company that basically killed her mother? Well, I think, and Angela's puzzled on a number of fronts. Like, she doesn't know why E-Corp would want her. And she has no idea why she should go to work for them. So she initially refuses. She says that basically every corporation is bad. And then Terry says to her, you know, if you want to change things, maybe you should think about trying that from the inside. And he, so he doesn't take no for an answer. He says, I need to know by tomorrow. Yeah, as with Elia, there's never really enough time to think about it. And that's the end of that conversation. So most of this episode kind of focuses on Elliot. We see him and Mr. Robot um, standing on a train platform waiting for a train together. And it's kind of explained that Elliot's memories are starting to come back. They're on their way to, um, I think it's uh, Elliot and Mr. Elmwood's childhood home. Yeah, and so they are having kind of an argument in the very same room where once Mr. Robot pushed Elliot out of the window... And it escalates to the point that actually Elliot throws Mr. Robot out of that very same window. Yeah, and that's quite a pivotal moment in this season. And we don't see the outcome of it because they, I guess they take off at that point. It kind of reminds me of the moments when um, Mr. Robot pushes Elliot off the boardwalk because you don't really see the resolution of the, of the scene until later on. That's so true because, well, and also we get distracted by a number of new factors. So, Darlene and Angela arrive on the scene shortly after. Because they've been looking for him practically the entire episode. And this is not a bad guess. Um, they're kind of derailed because all of a sudden also the new family who lives <laughs> in the house comes home. Yeah, so there's quite a party at this place now. But before they need to take off, um, they notice that the window's broken. So that's a really big hint to them because they know that in the past Mr. Robot had pushed Elliot out that window. So now Angela and Darlene, seeing the broken glass on the ground, they have the idea that Elliot has been there. But they've got to continue their search. So they actually catch up. We see Mr. Robot and Elliot at a graveyard, and the women find them. And Mr. Robot's first reaction is really negative, where he says they're going to try to get rid of him again, and Elliot needs to stop them. Yeah, and that really makes no sense when you're just listening to this for the first time. It doesn't. And then... This is sort of a chaotic scene. Like, Elliot's obviously um, pretty shaken up. Um, but, and Darlene and Angela don't really know what's going on, but we see that the tombstone they're all standing in front of is the father's grave. Right, so it's kind of a, a double fight club in a way because they, they threw you one twist, but then there's another right after. Yeah, so this, so we... I mean, what this clarifies for us as viewers is that we know now that uh, that Mr. Robot is something that lives inside of Elliot's mind and that other people can't see or interact with him. 
Yeah, this kind of, um, like, when you rewatch the series, there are so many instances where they make it obvious that they're the same person. But it, it doesn't really click. At least it didn't for me until this moment. It didn't click for me either. Um, one thing I want to highlight about this scene, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but um, I like about this series that they really don't glamorize mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really make me want to be an Elliot Juice. Yeah, like, it's not the sort of character where it's, you know... Uh, a wacky genius whose um, whose mental health issues propel them to greatness. It's that Elliot genuinely suffers under it, and here we see also his loved ones suffer around him. This is a very painful moment, and also the acting again from Remy Malek. Um, it's phenomenal. Really phenomenal here. Uh, a couple of other things. So this, at this point, Elliot. He does it intermittently in the earlier episodes, but we start to see him speak to us. His imaginary friend. Yeah, more. he's breaking the fourth wall. So he asks if we knew this all along. And I bet some people did, but we didn't, that's for sure. We didn't. <laughs> if any of our listeners out there did figure this out earlier, we'd be curious to hear from you, because I'm wondering what the, the trigger would be to yeah, figure that out. Um, the really important thing here, Elliot says, I am Mr. Robot. So he understands now that they're part of the same being. Um, if you read some of the writing online, sometimes they're referred to as Elliot Collective. Oh, that's cool. So he sort of realizes this plural identity existing within him, which, I mean, that's going to cause a lot more problems from, for him. But, of course, having an awareness of it is, uh, is his first step in tackling it at this point. So now Darlene and Angela have found Elliot, and they notice that he's not really in the best state of mind. Darlene starts to take him home on the train, and um, he, he says to her, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. So Darlene's worried about him, and she's trying to make sure that he's taken care of. Yeah, so back at the apartment, uh, Darlene starts looking around for his medication, and she finds a lot of uh, empty bottles. So, so he hasn't been taking his prescription, is what they're saying. Well, she accuses him of dumping them out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, the inference is that whatever treatment he requires, he's not been getting, so he is destabilized in that way. And I think this is when they both start question where if Elliot is not totally aware of his actions, if what they're doing is a good thing. Because Darlene... When they were traveling on the train, she asks him if he remembers when they started F-Society. So I guess it was kind of like a collective action. It must have been, but remember that the way Elliot experienced this as we knew it is that Mr. Robot recruited him one day on the subway. Oh, wow. So this is a revelation to him that it's actually Elliot and Darlene <laughs> who drove this thing. Right? Yeah, that, that's actually pretty mind-blowing. I'm pretty surprised I hadn't seen it that way at first. I think that's what triggers him to say that maybe they should abort the hack and it wasn't really him doing it. Darlene, I think she's too attached to the idea of this succeeding to really hear anything that he says at this point, because what she says is that really whatever else is real, the reasons behind it are real. And so the other thing, I think it's probably really shocking for Elliot and is shocking for us too, because the way we're introduced to the story is she says that this whole thing actually was his idea. So this all came from him anyway. This again, Elliot's talking to us more as his, he refers to us as his imaginary friend earlier. He asks what we would do in his shoes. And that's a really big question <laughs> that's left for us to think about while Darlene goes off to the pharmacy to refill his prescription and try to help Elliot get back onto some kind of even footing. So he's alone in the apartment now. Of course, he doesn't get a lot of time to ponder that question because as soon as Darlene walks out, Tyrell walks in. So Tyrell Wellick is at Elliot's apartment. This is not a good fucking time, Tyrell. Um, <laughs> uh, Tyrell is 
different than we've seen him before. He's really unruttered. He's got nothing to lose. And he's come to tell Elliot that he knows he's behind. He says all of it. I don't know that we know what Tyrell thinks that is. Yeah, it definitely is kind of vague at this point. Um, in fact, I'm not really sure what to take from this scene at all, because um, Tyrell walks in and um, he kind of... Well, well, first off, once again, he's, he's definitely channeling Patrick Bateman. And I think actually in a few shots in this scene, um, he actually looks a lot like Christian Bale in American Psycho. I think that must be deliberate, especially because um, he puts on these gloves, like plastic or nitrate or something like that, which is something that happens in that film as well. And um, he does that while he's describing in a very cold, cavalier way the way that he had murdered um, Sharon Knowles a few days ago. Um, he says that it wasn't really a big deal. He says it actually made him feel wonder. It, it still isn't really clear why he's revealing this to Elliot. And it's also not really clear why Elliot takes him to the F Society arcade after that point. Well, it's such an unlikely thing that happens next because in that scene, and it is such an American psycho scene, like the only thing that's missing from it is the studio playing in the background. <laughs> um, but Tyrell says he wants to know the plan. Um, and I don't know what it is that has shifted in Elliot that makes him take him. And when he gets Tyrell to the arcade, he tells them exactly what they're going to do to E-Corp. Yeah, and they have a kind of... It's another one of those kind of gratuitous uses of sci-fi, like in the first episode, because their plan for the hack is um, to encrypt all of the data and then delete the encryption key. But that is exactly the same as if you just deleted the data, except it would take like a long time to encrypt all of the data before you deleted it. So they kind of just wanted to use encryption as like a buzzword here, but really all they're doing is deleting the data like anybody else. Do you think it's a bit of cat and mouse? Because obviously they're going to try to decrypt is that yeah. the word? They're going to try to decrypt the data, so they're going to waste time, resources, money. Like, do you think they're just messing with them? Maybe. Like, that, that could definitely be a good um, a good plan for them. But when you're encrypting something, it takes a lot of time. Like, it's very CPU uh, inefficient. So by using this encryption strategy, it actually makes it take much longer than a more simple attack. So interesting. Um, Tyrell is really impressed by this attack, by the way. But so here's a flip from some of what we talked about before. He asks Elliot who else was involved. Elliot says, just me. And now, I don't know if that's Elliot shielding other people from implication. Or maybe Elliot just thinks of it all in his head. He really doesn't know at this point. That's the other possibility that I see, that he truthfully doesn't know what's real and what's not. Now Tyrell wants to be part of the team, and this is such an unlikely partnership. But remember when I went, what I said before about if Tyrell is Macbeth and Elliot is Hamlet, both of them want to kill the king. So maybe they have to work together here. There's one key thing I think that sticks out where Tyrell asks about Elliot's motivations. Yeah, and what he says is that um, he wanted to save the world. What do you think that means? Well, I think this is back to, remember we talked about Flipper, where uh, the vet says, you, she won't know what you're doing is good for her. Oh, I see where you're going with this. I think this is about, they've obviously, this plan could create a lot of pain and chaos and loss for people but ultimately it's something they think is good for them. So I think he thinks that the cycle, of course, of indebtedness and the way capitalism has evolved, uh, that by freeing people of the constraints of that, that he is going to save the world in a fashion. That's really great. Thanks for leaving that back in. There's one last really weird kind of point to make. It really is just on the screen for like a second or two, if it's what I think you're talking about. Yeah, so as we're closing out this scene, uh, we see popcorn popping in the, the F Society popcorn maker. And we all know what's in there. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Mr. Rewatch. This podcast was recorded in downtown Toronto. The charity we're highlighting for this episode is Rainbow Railroad. They help LGBT plus people escape state-sponsored violence. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Erin. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.